Ladies and gentlemen, it is a very awesome privilege for me to introduce to you today a, a long-time friend of ours, and uh, Aaron Walsh. Aaron, he, he was here last night, and just he was just fantastic. I don't know if you were here last night, but he was just fantastic. And uh, I know that this morning you're going to be blessed. Aaron, um, Aaron and his family grew up here in Bay City, and at the age of 21 years, he shifted to Kansas City and has been helping there, uh, and it was part of building the International House of Prayer, and uh, worked and was trained and mentored by some of the world leaders today. And uh, he has absolutely got something from God. Now he's based in Tauranga, back in New Zealand, and uh, working with, International, uh, with the House of Prayer up there. And uh, so Aaron, it is so good to have you here. Why don't you give Aaron, Aaron Walsh a, a warm welcome this morning. Aaron, thanks so much for coming here. It's great to have you in the house, and uh, man, just, just so appreciate just what God's done in your life, and, and uh, look forward to just having, hearing what you have for us this morning. Good morning. Wow, what a place to be back, eh? I wasn't getting too sentimental during worship, but I was thinking I was saved in this building. I received the Holy Spirit in this building. Um, my parents were discipled in this building. I think of uh, Roger and Jenny. I was just thinking, uh, we were laughing about it yesterday, but Roger and Jenny discipled mum and dad. So I'm just thinking, they must be getting old, Roger and Jenny. <laughs> Some of you will remember with great joy, uh, I was just sitting in worship, uh, thinking this morning, remember when Jill Austin was here in the 90s. And just the wave of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that really characterized this place. So it's a tremendous privilege to be here, tremendous honor to be uh, with you all. Um, as Dave said, I spent about eight or nine years in, in, uh, in the U.S. And we came back to New Zealand in 2006. And uh, it was quite an interesting story. I was, my wife's American, which is a miracle. You know, some of you are just surprised I even got married. Um, <laughs> That was a sign and a wonder, I can tell you, you know. And uh, so I married this unbelievably beautiful, godly American woman. You know, you know the, that sort of guy walking down the street and you wonder, how did he get her? That's me, you know. <laughs> I look around the room, there's a few of you here today, so congratulations. And, uh, and so I end up marrying this beautiful, godly uh, American woman. And, and uh, we're having this... Uh, you know, someone call it processing, that's a bit of a euphemism, uh, about would we return back to New Zealand? And God, do you have something back here in, in the land as an inheritance? And uh, I was in a mall in South Kansas City. I not normally frequent malls. I can avoid them if uh, at all possible. And uh, I was in this mall in South Kansas City, and this, this guy walked up to me, and this is the most bizarre thing, because the night before we said, Lord, we just need a sign. If we're to come back here, we need to know from you, we're not moving our whole family. My mum and dad had just moved to Kansas City. We had a little girl called Taylor at the time who was then probably 18 months old. And I said, Lord, we need to hear from you. This can't be anything we just do on a whim. And I'm, I'm standing in this mall in Kansas City with a guy called Kristen Williams, who some of you are familiar with. He's now the um, pastor of the church that we planted last year, a church called Hope Center in Tauranga. And... Uh, I'm standing there, and this guy walks up to me out of the blue, and he says, Aaron Walsh. And I said, this is bizarre. I said, yes, yes, that's me. And uh, he goes, my name is Barry. And I thought, well, he's either an Aussie or a Kiwi or a South African, right? 
Well, who else calls their kids Barry? You know? And um, <clears throat> so he says, he says, Aaron Walsh. He says, my name's Barry. And, and he said this. He said, I'm from Tauranga, in New Zealand. He said, I'm a pharmaceutical salesman. I'm, I'm, on my, I'm on my way to Paris, France. And I've had you on my heart all day. I had a stopover and I needed to pick up some, some uh, deodorant. I thought, well, not a true Kiwi male, really, eh? You go a couple of days without the stuff and you're still fine. And um, so he says, I need some deodorant. And he looked at me and he says, I have the word of the Lord in my heart for you today, young man. He goes, in case you're wondering, now is the time to return to your land. And, uh, you know, I'm going, is he real? I got Kristen next to me, I go, it's an angel, bro. It's got to be an angel. I mean, this just doesn't happen. And uh, well, he was real. He lives in Tauranga. And uh, so the Lord set us on this journey of coming back to New Zealand. And um, it's been an incredible journey. It's been incredibly challenging. Um, as sharing with some of the uh, guys last night, we've just been through a bit of a fire the last five years. Anyone can bear witness to going through the fire. And uh, five years ago, my wife got uh, diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. And, you know, but by, the, by some, sometime during this morning when I feel like the Holy Spirit is leading us away, I really have on my heart this morning to pray for people with chronic illness. Um, it's been something that's just on my heart. You know, it's the paradox, right? You have a chronically ill wife, but you have authority to see healing in chronically ill people. You go, okay, I, I, that's a mystery. I'm not going to try and battle with that one. But, so I just feel like we'll do that this morning. And so, you know, that's been our journey. And we started a community around three things. And our community was based on pray, equip, send. And so we said, you know, we're equipping center, fueled by prayer unto mission. And that's what I'm going to talk a little bit this morning about the ecclesia, about the church, what God sees it as. And what, what has become surprising, we, we, you know, we have about uh, 40 hours a week of corporate prayer as a community. And uh, I was telling the guys last night, probably about 100 to 200 of the people that come each week are under the age of 30. And uh, we've seen an amazing move of prayer. And, uh, you know, I'll talk a little bit about it tonight, but God is changing the face of prayer. And the reason is he's promised my house will be a house of prayer. Not a group on a Tuesday night called intercessors. Ever got the difference there? My house will be called a house of prayer. I'd like to suggest if you talk to God about changing situations, I'm, gonna, uh, I'm going to endorse you today as an intercessor. That's what you are. Anyone who talks to God to see things shift is an intercessor. And God's call was this, that prayer wouldn't be done by the few, but it would be done by all. Why? Because every voice is powerful. God hear, hears every voice and God acts on behalf of everyone. And so we'll talk about that a little bit tonight. But if you have your Bibles this morning, would you just turn to Matthew 16, 18? I have uh, the great privilege of having Gideon supply me with my Bible this morning uh, because my briefcase with all of my stuff in is on a bench in Tauranga. I did bring deodorant though, eh? That's a bonus. So we're, we're going with Gideon's this morning. Uh, when I go home, I'm going to find their website and give them some money. Do a magnificent work. Okay, so here we have Jesus. Jesus is, is very, very few times Jesus actually talks about the church. Have you noticed that? He talks a lot about the kingdom. He talks a lot about what he wants to do with his kingdom. But he doesn't talk a lot about this vehicle of the kingdom called the ecclesia. 
And so this is one of the very few times he does it, does it. In fact, you know, only twice in his life he gets really, really mad. And the two times he gets really mad is when his church is misrepresented. So the first time you know he gets mad is when he said, this is meant to be my father's house. He's talking about this. This is meant to be accessible. It's not, there can't be hoops to jump through that allow you to touch God. God is welcoming. God is generous. God is good. It's his father's house. And you walk in here like a son, like you own the place in God, and, he, and you can sit before your father, and he will lavish his love on you, right? He said, this is my father's house. And he got mad about that. The second time he got mad was this. This is meant to be a place of prayer, not a place where an economic transaction is made. Man, we could carry that word a little bit these days, couldn't we? That God's house doesn't exist to create wealth for those that are leading it, but God's house exists for the people of God to access God, right? That's why he said it's called a house of prayer. This is what I want it to be known as. You know that when he said my house is a house of prayer, it's the only time in the Gospels he talked about the function of the church. It's a very interesting thing. He could have done, he, he calls us numbers things. He calls us the priesthood of believers. He goes through lots of things. But he says, what I want my house to be known as, right? What I want to be known as this, my house is going to be a house of prayer. And just this week, I was up in Malaysia. And for many of you who have been to Malaysia, uh, you know the, the early morning prayer call. How many of you have been in Malaysia and heard that or been in Islamic nations and heard that? And the call just begins to ring out, doesn't it? And one of my challenges to the church of Penang, where I was in, in, off the coast of Malaysia, was this. Would we meet every call to prayer by, the, by Islam with Christianity? Would we meet it? Meaning this, what would happen if we decided we're going to pray five times a day? What would happen if we said we are going to actually take the words of Jesus seriously? We're going to pray. We're going to be a people of prayer. Jesus' description is this. Before this thing's all over, I want you to know something. My people will be a people of prayer. This is going to guarantee it's a prophecy from the heart of God. So in Matthew 16, Jesus again is addressing a little bit around the purpose of the church. So I want to talk a little bit around the purpose of the church. And then I'm going to give from, what, uh, from uh, Ephesians 4, we're going to go there in a little bit, what I think are some pillars around this subject. So I'm just going to give you an overall view this morning. And so Jesus says this in verse 18. He says, Peter, I'm about to build my church. And I'm going to build it not upon you. Okay, so you read that some, some commentators have alluded, well, it's built upon Peter. No, it's not built upon Peter. It's built upon the truth that Peter beheld in Christ. And the truth of this, you are the Christ. You are the living King. You are the Lord of all, right? You are sent from your Father. You are incarnate in our midst. You are God and God alone. And he said, upon that, Christ the cornerstone, Christ the center, upon that critical central revelation, I'm going to build this thing called the ecclesia. And when I build it, here's what's going to happen. Listen to these phrases. When I build it, the gates of hell will not be able to prevail against it. This is one of the things. This is the one of the characteristics of God's people is that hell will attack, but hell won't prevail. This is one of the characteristics. The Lord said this, I want to build a church where the enemy does not have a stronghold. 
So what about this, guys? What would this, if we begin to dream in our hearts, what about if we dream for this, a pornography-free church? Why don't we dream for that, right? What about we dream for things like this, and I know it's complicated and all of that simple, a divorce-free church. If we begin to dream for this, we dream to believe that, 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 that even though hell would be assigned against God's people, there would be a prevailing, there would be an overcoming in that. And so I think what we have to posture ourselves for, in some sense, is that the only way the church prevails and, 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 and the revelation of prevailing occurs if we are tested. We are going to be tested. Everyone know that? We're going to be tested beyond measure. But the testing is the furnace that produces the gold that moves the heart of God. And we're going to come out tested, purified, refined, and ready to marry the son. How about that? Okay. And so this is what he says. I, I, I'm gonna, the gates of hell are going to come against you, but you're going to prevail. And here's what he says. Listen to these verses. And I am going to give you keys. Everyone, everyone understand that word keys, right? I'm going to give you keys to the kingdom of heaven. And here's what happens when you get the keys. Whatever you bind, on the, uh, on the earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on the earth will be loosed on heaven, uh, in heaven. So here's what Jesus is saying. He says, there is a clear purpose for, for my people. There is a clear purpose. And this is what I want to call us again to. Some of us over the years may have forgotten or moved away from God's delight and purpose in this vehicle of his heart called the ecclesia, called his church. We, will never, we can never move past the fact that God doesn't have a plan B with transformation of the earth that doesn't include His church. There, there isn't, like we'll talk about this a little bit, there is no one else. The, 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 for some of us, the tragic and the beautiful thing is we are it. You know, so you can't look elsewhere wondering where the next move of God will come from. It's us. That's where it is. There, there, there isn't too many options. You're like, wow, you're not working with much. Lord, he goes, I, can, I don't, need, to, I don't have, need to have much to work with. I feel that in my own life. Anyone feel that? I feel like I give him a trickle. He gives me a torrent. It's a good exchange. Okay. And so here's what he says. I want, I want you to know this. Here's what happens when the church is functioning within a community. Darkness is stopped. And light is released. Okay. This is our purpose. Our purpose is, is that we have an authority that he's given us. He's, I'm going to give you keys to the kingdom. I'm going to give you these, these, these uh, pieces of truth. I'm going to give you these paradigms. I'm going to give you these insights. And when you put these insights in place and you build my way and you begin to develop things my way, something miraculous is going to begin to happen within your communities. Here's what's going to happen. That darkness is going to be uh, destroyed within your communities. How many of you are aware that the very first prophecy of Scripture is about this? In Genesis 3.15, the Lord speaks a first prophetic word over this, this woman called Eve, and he, and, and he says this to her. He says, do you know that out of that seed that's in your body is going to come a human being, a man? And that man is going to crush the head of the evil one. That's what he's going to do. And it's interesting that in that one verse later, in, in, uh, in Genesis 4, we have our first prayer meeting in the history of, of humanity. 
And it said this, when Seth did not fulfill the promise that was given to Eve, meaning this, it wasn't Cain, it wasn't Abel, it wasn't Seth, it said this, and then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. And it's an ancient cry that we have all within all of us. And it's this, we must see the work of the evil one cease in our communities. It's a, it's a holy cry, like, for this reason, the Son of Man would made manifest that he might what? That he might destroy the works of the evil one. We can't have a church that is the church of Jesus that isn't committed to seeing darkness removed out of our communities. It's who we are to be as the people of God, right? It's what God's called us to do. It's what we have authority to do. It's what we have instruction to do. It's what we've been commanded to do. And the essence of of the very center of us existing as a community is that darkness doesn't have an ability to operate in our atmosphere. Right? When the Son of Man was revealed, here's what was said, right? I have, he came into the world, he said, and light has come into the world and the darkness could not contain it. The darkness could not comprehend it. I don't know if you've ever noticed, I'm going to give you some really good news. When you turn on a light in a room, darkness leaves every time. Anyone notice that? That's one of the most amazing things. That, that light always wins over darkness. Always. And here's what Jesus was saying. I want darkness to be expelled out of your city, but here's here's what else I want. I want you to begin to command light to break in. I want you to begin to look over your community and say, "This, this is the role of the ecclesia, that we would see light break forth, that we would see the goodness of God manifested in the land of the living that we would begin to see the things that God has promised we would see. We would begin to see the bodies made well. We would begin to see the brokenhearted bound up, right? Matthew, uh, Luke 4, right? We'd see those that are broken in heart. They begin to come and they get healing. We begin to see the bodies that are broken begin to be made whole. We begin to see the oppressed freed, right? And, and why I think this is becoming so critical is that a lot of my work and a lot of my travel in the last decade has been mostly with 18 to 25-year-olds, And I don't think we're quite aware of what we're about to deal with in the next five to ten years. As far as what they've been brought up in, what they've been exposed to. And there is going to be a, 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 I I think in some senses, uh, I have this prophetic sense in my heart, is that there is going to be in the next five to ten years many young people who for a minute of clarity are going to figure out that all of those years spent on the internet, all of those years spent uh, on social media, All of those years spent gazing at this and that, for a minute, God's going to open eyes and they're going to come to the revelation that there's nothing there for me. And they're going to come walking in our doors and they have to walk in and they can't find an alternative of what they've currently been experienced that just has Christian language. Right? And so we have this great fight in culture today. And, and, you know, particularly in a post-Christian country like New Zealand, we have a great battle on our hands. And it's not that the, 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 the answer in some senses is that we create environments that reflect what they need, uh, well, sorry, what they want. We have to create environments about what they need. And so that means this, is that when someone walks into the door, are they going to find a place? Well, we put, put this question to you. Is there a place in Hastings where a young man can get free? It's going to become a big question, right? Is there a place? Is there a place where light can break in? 
Is there a place where people can get healed and made whole? And not just for a minute in an encounter, but a discipleship where we take lives and we begin to help them walk into what God has called them to walk to. And this is what Jesus is talking about. He says, I'm going to give you keys. So this morning, I just want to briefly this morning look at the book of Ephesians, and particularly Ephesians 4, which is, anyone who knows Ephesians 4, it's probably our, our most solid chapter in the Word on ecclesiology. Everyone know what ecclesiology is? The makeup of the church. What is the church to be? And so if you just, in your Bibles, turn to Ephesians 4, and I just want to have a look at a, a couple of things. And this became a, um, a quite an important bit of Scripture for us personally as we built in Tauranga, because when we started our community, we uh, kind of moved off the, some of the model of the book of Ezra. And, and Ezra, they had just come back to inhabit a land that was pretty disastrous, to be honest. They had, had been run over in their absence. They had been to Babylon, uh, they had been with Nebuchadnezzar, and, and they had been just run over, and it was terrible when they came back, and it was, there was no money in the land. It wasn't a very good environment, and they had to start to pioneer. And in Ezra 3, it says this, the first thing they did is they built an altar and they went to God in prayer. And so that's what we thought, we, man, what do we do? Don't know. But here's what I do know. The more you pray, the more you find out what you need to know. So we, start, we said, we're going to build an altar. We're going to build an altar. We're just going to come before God on a daily basis as a community uh, as much as we can. And we met in living rooms and, you know, did all that sort of crazy stuff. Here's the funny thing. The first building we got was an old exclusive brethren building. I'd always wondered what they were like. You know the one that was up by St. Leonard's Park? Remember that? Is that still there? It's empty. Is the fence still around it? Okay, good. Yeah, they still maintain the fence. That's happy to go. And so I, I never knew what it was like. I walked into this thing. I said, I've always wondered what it was like to go into the Holy of Holies. And, I, and this, one, this thing had this amphitheater. All the circles faced the middle. Uh, every chair had a microphone underneath it. It's a place where you could put your microphone in because apparently anyone can bring the word of the Lord at any time. There were no windows, which is quite disturbing. No sound system. And, I, and, and if anyone can fill me in on this in, in the future, the doors to the toilet, you couldn't go in and out the same door. You had to go in one and out the other. So there you go. So there's your insight into exclusive brethren's buildings. And uh, so we're in this building, and, 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 and we were praying, and our community was growing, and, and God was breathing on, on, on some stuff. And I have this dream. And, you know, and, my, and I thought at this point, you know, we're just to build day and night prayer. We can invite his presence and we'll see what happens. And I have this dream. And in, the Lord, in this dream, the Lord talks to me and he says, Aaron, he says, um, I, I want, you to, I want to, uh, to talk to you about what you guys are doing. And I said, okay, yeah, let's have a chat. And he goes, what you're doing is great. It's awesome. He says, but you're not building it my way. And I spoke a little bit about this uh, last night. But I think what we have to understand in, in, in the kingdom and with God God gives, God gives words of what he's called us to do, but we also have to know just and as important is that God gives ways in which those words are obtained. And it's not just that we receive a prophetic word and we have a guarantee. We receive a prophetic word, it's an invitation. And the invitation is this, will you not just adopt the promise in its entirety, but would you also adopt the process I'm going to have with your life of bringing you into the promise? Because God wants us to inherit the promise with humility. How many of you know that's one of the hardest things? I remember as a young man, Mike Bickle, saying to me, Aaron, he says, the hardest thing won't be to have perseverance while you wait for your promise. It will be to have humility when the promise is delivered. And so the Lord is saying, I, I want you to have humility around this. I want you to walk in humility 
uh, as you do this. And so he said, you're courageous, I love what you're doing, but you're not building it my way. And I said, Lord, what's your way? What's your way? And in the dream, he said this to me, see Ephesians 4. So for a year, every morning I got up and I read Ephesians 4. It's not very long. And I memorized it. I thought, I've got to memorize it. I'm going to read it every day. I'm going to say, Lord, what? What is this thing about? What do you, what do you have in Ephesians 4? What are the keys that you, you want to give to us that will help us move into what you have for us? And uh, I only really got two messages out of it, and I'm just going to talk about those things this morning. The first message was this. Unity of values. Okay, I'm going to give you a little, little bit of a word phrase, okay? Unity of values. Everyone got that? Plus, so if we're doing an equation, diversity of expression, diversity of gifting equals maturity of God's people. So everyone got that? Okay. So agreement. So we've got to have unity. I'm going to talk about what we need to be unified around. We've got to have diversity. And, and Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians 3. One plants a seed, another one waters it in order for God to give growth. Can you see the different gifts there? So see, some people are seed planters. They're, they're our pioneers. They're our entrepreneurs. They're our, they're our Ephesians 2.20. Upon this church, I will build the apostolic and prophetic ministries. How many of you know the apostolic and prophetic gift gets things moving? It just gets things moving. It generates what God's doing, and it begins to have things move forward. But the Lord says that's not enough. You can generate, you can move things forward, but we need those that will come in, and they will capture, and they will steward the momentum that I've created. I call those people sustainers, very detail-orientated people, okay? And that's where we have our teachers, right? We have our pastors. The evangelist kind of sits everywhere. They've got to do a bit of everything. But we have our teachers and their pastors. What do they do? They say this, God is breathing on our work. God is bringing growth. How many of you know that with this many people in the room, if you don't have people stewarding what God is doing, you will not be able to sustain what God is doing. So we need stewardship. We need to be able to steward what God is doing. We need to honor that. We need to do that. And so, so what I began to find is that I really mostly like people who agree with me. Anyone else can get an amen? who think the same way as I think, who approach it the same way as I approach. But here's, here's this equation if we, if we get it wrong, okay? We can have unity of values plus uniformity of expression. We've had a lot of that, right? Equals immaturity of God's people, okay? So uniformity always produces immaturity. The other way, which is just disastrous, if you don't have unity of values, it doesn't matter what sort of expression you have, you're going to have division. And so one of the important questions for me was this, what do we need to be unified around and what do we need to be diverse around? How many of you think they're good questions? You don't want to be diverse around the things that God has called us to be unified around. And so Paul, in his brilliance, answers this question. And he begins writing to the church uh, of Ephesus, and he says this, there's seven ones. Everybody remember these ones? He says this as he writes to them, I want you to know this church. I want you to know that there is one church. Wow, how about that? One. Okay, you don't have another option. You're it. Okay, there is one church. There is this vehicle called the Ecclesia, which God is going to transform community through. That's his vehicle. How about this? There is one spirit. There, there is one hope. There is one Lord. There is one faith. 
There is one baptism and there is one God. Hear that? These are our non-negotiables. Everybody getting this? Okay. Because here's the danger. The danger is this, is that there is a movement coming through the church of what they would call, uh, we're, we're just bringing some reformation or progression to the church. And here's the danger. We can change our expressions, but we can't change our truths. Everyone getting this? We can't change our truths. Our truths can't be put up to be voted for or against whether we need to be diverse. And this is what, this is what Paul is writing for. He says, here's where we can have unity. You're going to do a whole bunch of things, but here's what needs to be in place for us to walk together. We've got to understand that there is one Holy Spirit given to us by the Father as a gift living on the inside, ministering in our midst to bring forth everything that the Father represents and the Son died for that we might inherit what it's meant to be to walk in freedom in life. We have one Holy Spirit, right? Everybody got that one? We have one hope, one hope. Our hope today is this, Christ in us, the hope of glory. And our other hope is this, Christ will come again, right? The blessed hope of the church. We have one hope that Christ today would break forth with power living in us and would bring freedom to us and freedom into our community. That is our hope, right? Our hope is this, is that Jesus would walk into our midst this morning and he would bring transformation to us. Our hope this morning is Jesus will go with us throughout the week and everything we touch is touched by him. Our hope is this, that he will show up when he has promised he will show up and he will do what he has said he will do. And that is our ultimate hope, right? Our hope is not circumstantial. Our hope is not situational. Our hope is that that man that died 2,000 years ago who is living on the Side would manifest his life through us and breakthrough would come, right? That's a hope. That's a real hope. And we have another hope. One day that man is not going to remain in heaven forever. It's good news, beloved. The blessed hope of the church is the return of Christ. It's a blessed hope. It's a beautiful hope. I think some of us need to have a Christology that didn't stop at the ascension. Does anyone understand what I'm saying? Jesus' involvement with the earth did not stop at the ascension. His plan did not stop when he split the sky to go up. His plan is still in place. In fact, Psalm 2 says this, which is the offense of the nations. I have set my son on his holy hill. I have set him. He is the king of the nations. He is God of all. And every nation will be his inheritance. And every island he will have a possession. That the kings may rage and they may scheme and they may plan against it. But I want you to know this. There is a man on a holy hill. And that man is not a baby in a manger anymore. He's not just a broken man on a cross. In fact, Revelation 5 says this about him. He is sitting and he is worthy of all praise. He has taken the scroll out of the right hand of the Father and has been given to him all authority, all power, all dominion to execute the plan of God on the earth. Okay, And we need to know that this, this man doesn't just plan to stay resident in heaven forever. But as we hold the ground and contend, there is going to be a day, according to the book of Revelation, where the Spirit and the bride say, come, right? And He says, okay, I'm coming. 
I'm coming. And everything that is wrong is made right in an instant as the Son of Man splits the sky and we return back to Eden with the presence of the new Jerusalem. This is our promise. This is our hope, right? We have one hope. It's a very, very powerful hope. How about this? We have one Lord. Christ and Christ alone. We have one King. We have one that is the Lord above all lords. There is one who is transcendent above all other kings. There is one who is uncreated God himself manifest in a human body. There is one that has been given all authority to. We have one king. There is one Lord. There is one which every knee will bow to, right? Either voluntary or involuntary. There is one Lord. There is one Lord of the nations. His name is Jesus. We have one faith that we have been brought into. It's an ancient and holy faith. This is not negotiable. We have 2,000 years of church history that has worked around this thing called the beautiful Word of God, right? This has been our guide. This has been our our holy text, to use that phrase. This has meant everything to us as the people of God. And the Lord is saying this, don't forsake my Word. Not even as culture is bearing down on you about the intolerance of what this book may or may not contain. The Lord is saying, would you be loyal to it? Would you be loyal to my word? I know the human heart better than anyone else. And in this is pure wisdom. So we have one faith. We have one baptism. By the Holy Spirit living in us with power and by water. How about that? These are critical things to us. And we have one God. One God. We have one that has no origin. We have one that is the creator of all things. We have one that is the reason behind all things. We have have one that is the first cause. We have the one that is eternal, who has no beginning and will have no end. We have the uncreated and infinite God whose perfections will never, ever be counted. Can you imagine what it's going to be like when you stand before that man and you stand with that holy company of angels and they're singing the same song they've been singing for like thousands of years, right? Holy, holy, holy. How many of you get sick of a song pretty quickly? I do. I mean, if I hear open the eyes of my heart one more time, I'm done. I'm like, man, I I, I think they're open now, Lord. I sang that like 10,000 times, right? Open the eyes. No, no, let's not go there. Okay. But here are angels. Here are angels. They've never stopped. They do not rest day or night. They haven't rested. Why? Is it because they, can, they possess the faculties for endless worship? Well, I think having a bunch of eyes would be helpful, don't you think? You know, if that's your job. You know, the seraphim, the guys with all the eyes. Isaiah hears them. What are they singing? Holy, holy, holy. John hears them. What are they singing? They haven't changed their song. Holy, holy, holy. What are they saying? They're saying something like this, I think. You are infinitely beautiful. You are infinitely beautiful. You are transcendent in your splendor. You have no limits to the perfections that lie within your being. It says that they can't stop, they've never stopped, and they won't stop. So imagine this, a billion years from now when we're on the sea of glass and that heaven has come to earth and Christ is in the midst of us and we are singing the same song. But here's the good news. We will be no closer to exhausting the perfections that lie within the being of God then as the day they began to sing. Because the unlimitless God will begin to continue forever to flow out of his beings perfections that we don't even have words for. This is our one God. Can we say we've got one God, right? He's infinite, he's eternal, and he's beautiful. 
And these become the things. These are our core messages. These are our creeds. These are our orthodoxy. These are the things that have made the church the church 2,000 years later. And here's what I believe, guys. They're not up to be voted on. They're not up to be negotiated around. They're not up where we go, shall we decide whether we have one or two lords? Shall we decide whether there's one or two baptisms? And so this is, these are the things that we're to have unity around. So I don't believe we're to have diversity around these things. And then here's what Paul says. Now, he goes, this is where diversity matters. And you can see from the next verse. But to each of us, everybody say each of us. Spoke about this first Peter 4 last night. Every single one of you have a gift. To each of us was given a gift. And the gift is the reflection of Christ. Not now one man in one geographical area revealing the kingdom of God. But how about this? Many men and women in many geographical areas revealing the kingdom of God, manifesting Christ to the community through the gifts. Here's what he says. When he ascended, he gave gifts to men. Isn't that beautiful? Why? He gave us gifts, and they're diverse gifts. We talked about this. They're diverse. They're crazily diverse. Have you ever tried to put an apostle and a pastor in the same room and look at a situation? The apostle's saying, how many nations do we need to take this week? The pastor's saying, how many people do we need to love and be comforted? Teachers in the corner going, no one knows the word. <laughs> we need to get back to the word. The prophet's like, no one's hearing from God. What is the word of the Lord to us? The evangelist is going, you're all useless. We don't have any souls. Don't you care? (laughs) So we see this this combination of these diversity. We see like this, this rubbing up of shoulders against each other. And this is what the Lord spoke to us a number of years ago. You've got to build it my way. I'm like, I don't know if I like your way. Your way requires that we make room for everyone. He goes, that's my point. My way means this, Aaron. You let go of being controlling. Ooh, ooh, I don't know if I like that. He goes, oh, it's way better if you're free than you're under control. Okay, that's good to know. How many think that's good to know? Okay, it's really helpful to know. Freedom is way better than control. We're going to make room for people. You've got to make room for people's giftings. You've got to make room. It's one thing, I talked about this last night a little bit. It's one thing to honor. How many of you know it's really easy to honor? Man, we love your gift. How many think it's really, really hard to make room for it? Meaning this, your gift can function. And when it functions, it might bump up against my perspective. It might bump up against, and this is what the Lord is saying. He said, I'm going to throw all of these things in your midst. I'm going to throw all of these things in your midst. And here's why. Here's the phrase the Lord gave me. The Lord said this. I created diversity, and, but I demand unity in order that I might produce humility in your midst. This is where we're heading, guys. This is what it's actually about. He goes, I created diversity. I would thought, man, if I had done, I would have done uniformity. A lot easier to control. He goes, that's the point. How many think uniformity would have worked a little bit better? Like I got diversity in my children. I just would like a little bit more uniformity, right? Just a little bit, okay. And the constant wrestle, how many of you have children in the constant wrestle? Do we let them express themselves? They might die 
Okay, we've got to let them express themselves. You know, I was telling these guys last night, we had a breakthrough in my home this week. This is probably the most evil thing that had ever invaded our home. We finally got out. His name was Justin Bieber. No, I don't mind Bieber, but we got, we had Bieber fever. My 11-year-old girl's got Bieber fever. I'm like, we don't do Justin Bieber around here, darling. But why, Daddy's so cute? Like, you cannot think a boy's cute. Like, what happened? Like, you're 11. You can't use cute. Is anyone else like in that river? I'm 38. I'm like, you can't be, no, 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 no. I'm locking you away. You know that whole thing of, Because here's what happens. When we have control in our atmosphere, all we can produce is safe, predictable, and boring outcomes. If failure has terminal consequences, no one is free. You know how I got free of uh, my fear of failure? It's amazing. I failed a lot. It's the only way. You know what I discovered? It's not that bad. You should try it sometime. It's not actually that bad. It's a bit like fasting. How many of you know the thought of fasting is way worse than fasting? Well, I have fought myself out of 100 fasts. And I do it. I'm like, oh, yeah, it's not that bad. I'm just hungry for a day. I won't die. But here's the thing about failure. Failure always is larger than it really is. But here's what happens. When we have control in our environment... People are too scared to fail because failure will have terminal consequences. Everybody know what I mean by that? That means the consequences of failure are too high. I won't risk, I won't have innovation, and I won't be creative. So creativity, innovation, and risk can only happen in control-free environments. And this is what God wants to do with us. He wants to rid us of control, not just so that we get free at the heart level, but you know why? So every one of these gifts that are in this room can be manifested as God wanted it to. And then this beautiful mosaic of God's gifted, manifested through his ecclesia, become the gifted is to our community. So when we talk about keys, this is what I'm talking about. We've got to have keys, okay? So we've got unity, got diversity. I'm going to give you one more, okay? We've got to walk in humility. Oh, gosh, did you have to go there, Aaron? I'm going there. I'm going home tomorrow. And so I'm going to leave you. Humility, right? About 10 years ago, I read a book that changed my life on the subject. It was written by Andrew Murray, simply called Humility. I got to the end of the book, and I go, I don't even think I'm a believer. How many of you have read those sort of books? I read a book once by Art Katz. How many of you don't remember that name, Art Katz? On the fear of the Lord and the spirit of truth. I'm like, I'm going to die tonight when I go to sleep. You know, it was one of those books. Like, I think he brought every verse where the Lord um, smoked someone for lying. I'm like, okay, I'm dead. Lord, I'm just, you know, I go to bed. Please don't kill me tonight. And uh, so this, this, I read a book called Humility by Andrew, Andrew Murray. So what I want to do just as we end this morning and, and we're going to position our hearts, I want to give a couple of thoughts on humility. Humility is the glue that allows diversity to be operating in our midst. No humility, no diversity. So I want to give a couple of thoughts on what humility might practically look like. These aren't just uh, thoughts that might help you uh, within our church life, but I think these are thoughts that really help us in our family life. We've got to understand this, number one. We are just part or one part of a multifaceted orchestra. 
we're one part. Some of you remember the name John Wimber. Everyone remember John Wimber? Some of you? Yeah. John Wimber used to say this. He says, I am loose change in the pocket of God, and he can spend me as he ought. That's how he saw his life. He says, I'm one part, right? I'm one part. My part matters, but I'm one part of God's orchestra. I've got to play my part well. I've got to do what God's called me to be well. But here's what I can't do. I can't be every instrument. I can't be who I think I need to be in order to get prominence in ways that I hope for. I think this becomes some of the disaster of the church is when we do that. All right, here's the second thing, guys. This is critical for us. We've got to figure out how we lay down our lives for each other. So that's what I want to invite us into this morning as the worship team gathers. How are we going to lay down our lives for each other? Would we prefer each other? Would we fight for the inheritance of each other in the room? It's what humility does. Humility says this, I will fight for your inheritance before my own. Humility says this, I'm going to take up what you need. I'm prepared to lay down my life for you. As Jesus said, greater love had no man than to lay down his life for his friends. So let's just stand this morning. I'm going to take some time just for us to respond. How many of you believe this morning we can be the Matthew 16, 18, and 19 church? Build my church. Gates of hell won't prevail. I believe we can be that. How many of you know that unity, diversity, and humility is central? 